0: Hello, and welcome to the Shotput podcast. I'm Jim Manganello, one of the artistic directors of Shotput, which is a dance theater company based in Glasgow, Scotland. In this podcast, we have conversations with people from different practices, different to our own practice of dance and theater. We're investigating some ideas that are currently feeding our work, our shows, our other artistic projects. And we hope that this podcast allows you to walk with us for a little while and look at some interesting things, or at least things that are interesting us at the moment. This first miniseries of three episodes is all about film, and that's because it's being released in tandem with the Scottish tour of Shotput's live show Ferguson and Barton, which is a show that is in love with the cinema. The show was very loosely inspired by Alfred Hitchcock's film, Vertigo, um, which I I can't recommend enough. It's a true masterpiece. It's not completely uncontroversial, but for that reason alone, I really recommend that you check it out and whether or not you plan to watch Ferguson or Barton or Vertigo, I hope that these conversations uh, are stimulating and that you find something of interest for yourself. In this first episode, myself and ShopPut's other artistic director, Lucy Ireland, sat down to speak to Rob Willoughby. Things that we discuss are, what we discuss video stores, and the importance of having a space for experimentation, and the varying demands of different media and different screens. Rob, I should say, is a video designer. We talk about socialism and utopias and many many other things. Rob was really a natural first guest for this podcast, and that's because not only is he the video designer for Ferguson and Barton, as well as many other great productions that have recently played in Scotland, but he's a true polymath, uh, which is something we enjoy a lot at Shopput. Um, we're always shifting and always looking for different things to bring into the room, and Rob does that. Uh, in spades. His brain and his energy capture everything that we want this podcast to be. Curious, insatiable, insistent. Rob's recent work as a video designer includes Exodus with NTS, National Theatre of Scotland, Me and My Sister Tell Each Other Everything with the Tron Theatre here in Glasgow, Amy Conway's Super Awesome World, also at the Tron and Summer Hall, and Abby Watson's This Is Not a Euphemism, which was part of the fantastic Buzzcut Festival. Rob is also a filmmaker, stage director, sound designer, and since the lockdown of 2020, a live performance practitioner on Twitch, which we'll talk about in the podcast as well. He is an associate artist with Snap Elastic and Bright Theatre. These are two brilliant Scottish performance companies. I really um, encourage you to check them out as well as, I'm very happy to say, an artistic associate at Shotput. In fact, just this past week, we were in a studio with Rob making the very first, very early strokes on a new shopput project. And uh, I will say that we had a lot of fun with cassette tapes. And at one point, Rob played Masha from Chekhov's Three Sisters. So as I say, he is a man of many, many talents. There's more information on how you can catch Ferguson and Barton on tour at the end of this episode. For now, here's our conversation with Rob Willoughby. Hey Rob. Hello. Thanks for doing this. It's Hi. good to see you in wearing one of, one of your many hats. <laughs> I'm actually wearing a hoodie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Um, <laughs> A very nice day though. It is nice. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've 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 Rob's already been here for like an hour, so we've gone through clothing, shows. I don't know what we're going to talk about now.
1: No. Oh God. <laughs> okay,
0: so Rob Willoughby is here uh, with us, and we're talking um, about video design broadly, but who knows who knows where we'll what we'll get into, um, and and something that. Uh, Something that Rob shared with us when we were working on another project mm-hmm. um, that will hopefully happen one day is about a video store that played a massive part in your childhood. Oh, yes.
1: Channel 22. Channel 22. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. Okay. So it was, uh, um, uh, yeah, well, I say my childhood. I mean, it was my teenage years, which uh, or my, my early teenage years, um, which really is a kind of childhood. And I think maybe... Maybe we don't see it as much as one. Anyway, uh, Channel 22 was an independent video store uh, that used to be in Camden Town in London where I grew up. Um, And I guess you don't... There there aren't really any independent video stores anymore, which is a shame because it was like a... It was a magical place. It was a bit like... um, it's a bit like a portal to adulthood, to me. I think, and I, I had some uh, friends, made some friends at school who were still great friends of mine. Um, uh, a pair of twins called Matt and Joe, and uh, they used to frequent this uh, this video shop. And they introduced me to this video shop. We always used to go out, you know, when as teenagers growing up in North London, Camden Town is kind of a mecca for everything cool. It's where the goths hang out and the punks hang out. And uh, it's where there are bars that you can get served in when you're clearly not 18. And, you know, uh, it's a nightlife centre. It's changed a lot. It's not the place that it was. We're talking... Uh, I should probably give some kind of indication of how old I am, <laughs> that indicates when this is. But this would have been in the sort of late nineties and the early noughties, um, uh, that we were hanging out in 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 Camden Town and in Channel Twenty Two, and uh, and yeah, it was it was a video shop. It had uh, you know rows and rows and rows. Of, well, even by that time, most of them were DVDs and not videos, but we still called it a video shop, you know. Um, and yeah, it had you know independent films and foreign films and anime and, and horror movies and all the kinds of you know things that you would not see on television generally. You know, unless I don't know, you know there are still some, there's still some interesting late night um, excursions into the programming of the Sci-Fi Channel or Channel Five, or Channel Four. um, that, that had a similar uh, maturing effect upon a, a young man <laughs> a realization of what exists in the world, you know, and how weird and wonderful those things can be. But yeah, channel 22 is where I remember that we would go there and it felt like a wonderland because, you know, it, it was also kind of, suppose it was quite cool in a very nineties way that it had stainless steel stairs, a spiral staircase up to a sort of attic area or a mezzanine area in the shop that had more and more racks of, you know, ex- ex- uh, obscure is the word I'm looking for, more and more racks of obscure DVDs. And you would go there and, you know, and find things you couldn't find anywhere else and see things you couldn't see anywhere else. Um, uh, and like I say, that for me was like a, a uh, one of those portals into the into the adult world.
0: Mm,
2: did yeah. you always rent like a particular genre of film <laughs> or was it <laughs> rented all <laughs> kinds of things like,
1: yeah i mean so, <laughs> some of these films some of these films had boobs in them <laughs> and for teenage boys that was a big part of the attraction uh uh but it was so there's a there's a whole variety of different stuff there was i was a bit of a goth uh, and uh there i don't know if anyone knows the band cradle of filth uh i was uh into cradle of filth uh, which we're about exactly I mean, with. Cradle and, of filth, yeah cradle I mean. of filth and the lead singer <laughs> of cradle of filth who was called danny filth i think this is all quite vague now please don't quote me on any of this god don't record it and put it in a podcast or anything no, no, no. Uh, the lead singer of cradle of Filth also made a selection of like very um very bad very low budget very rude b-movie horror films mm-hmm. they were available in Channel 22 uh mostly a lot of anime and manga so you know akira ghost in the shell um so yeah just anything in that sort of area of of you know geeky uh and and slightly misfitted and i guess that's the other thing about it is when you feel like you don't really belong at school maybe, or you don't really fit in the mainstream because you're a bit of a, a sort of geeky loser who likes Cradle of Filth. Then, you know, the place that is a haven for all of those odd things that it welcomes them and seems to discover odd things from other parts of the world and offer them to you, you know, yeah, it just felt like a brilliant place to be. And I have very fond memories of it. Mm. I had
0: the equivalent video store, not nearly as romantic because mine was Blockbuster, but it was like 10 minute walk from my house. and. There were like there were movies that I still haven't seen, but I know their images yeah. so well that I feel like yeah. they were part of my formation as oh, a yeah. as a human, but also as like a maker. And like I remember um one of them was Farewell My Concubine. <laughs> and we just we just thought like the title was so great. <laughs> yes. And I've never we, heard of that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's one that I now have watched. You have to watch Farewell My Concubine. I mean, I don't know if I would call it like, yeah. yeah a masterpiece, but yeah. Um, yeah. it was just really, there was like that frisson of like <laughs> a, a slightly risky word Yes that I didn't necessarily know what it meant, mm. but I learned because of the title. Like, I guess what I'm getting at is like the artifactuality of the videos has yes. become a part of me. Yes. Even when I haven't seen- That the was the
1: thing about, yeah, Channel 22 as well is like, there are so many movies that we would obsess over the box of that you, you know, like, um, and I suppose, in, In the retrospect section. they must have had well yeah they must have had a um they must have had a policy of letting us rent things that weren't uh that were 18s mm-hmm. because I'm sure we saw movies that uh, must be 18s that we got from there but yeah there was a, there was a, an element to which you'd still have to go and take it to the counter do you know what I mean so there are some There's things risk. that you wouldn't even consider you know but you would look at the back of that box and imagine uh, what that film entails based on you know two really bad paragraphs of copy and like four very bad stills from the film, yeah.
0: Totally. I think that's a really good point. Like you're taking, you, it feels very low risk, like hanging out with your mates in a video store, but there's still this little element of risk and dipping your toe into... I don't know, dipping your toe into the slightly dangerous. It's still very safe.
1: And the other thing is, I think that's important is this was the age before Wikipedia, Mm. right? So if you saw something that was interesting on the back of a video box, you couldn't then go home and do the research yourself, come back knowing exactly what it was you were getting, and then, you know, responsibly go to the counter and ask for that thing. Like you would have to, I always remember being terrified and also excited to ask the, the guys who worked in the video shop anything because they were encyclopedias of knowledge and you didn't want to look like an idiot who didn't know what he was talking about who didn't know his anime who didn't know his sci-fi um but they they knew it all you know and you wanted to at the same time learn from them but also not not look like you were uh uh not worthy of being there some kind of you know idiot outsider you know, or something
0: but i also feel like you're so i mean you're someone who strikes me as like i've seen the way that you can get i don't want to say obsessed, but like no, yeah, no, you no, get, get interested obsessed. in gadgets yeah. yes, and in oh, like absolutely. material objects and yes. things. And, and maybe this is transitioning us into the, the world of theater and design as well, mm-hmm. that it seems to me that that's a real motor for you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, stuff and taking things apart and seeing how they work and, and, and you know looking them, yeah, inside and out is definitely a, and And I, yeah, obsessed is, is exactly the word I would use.
2: Were you always like that?
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've always been someone who wanted to yeah, like create intricate things and create intricate worlds as well. The other the thing that I always, I always have trouble talking about what I do as an artist because I like to do lots of different things and wear lots of different hats as you said at the beginning. And so when I have how to think about what it is that pulls those things together the thing that i always say is that i like building worlds um and i like then going on to explore those worlds you know as uh, with uh, with with audiences often you know um uh and that possibility of discovery in a world that you've intricately created yourself is something that definitely comes from childhood and it comes from you know really enjoying um my my father used to build model railways and i have really fond memories of like being (laughs) simultaneously incredibly intrigued uh, but also completely forbidden from interacting with the model railways because they were not toys but then i had you know lego i had a very intricate lego spaceport that i spent years adding to the personal lore and stories of as you'd add new buildings and spaceships and characters that you you've created you know um and it's that thing of not just becoming obsessed with something but wanting to to sort of build it into your own little intricate world that you can then, you know, live in maybe.
2: What was like the first world that you created?
1: Oh God, the first, I don't know. I remember early memories of sandpits being amazing, you know, even before, uh, you know, Lego was a fixation for years. But I think I would also love to um, go to the sandpit on the way home from school. And because in the sandpit, I would... I would build worlds. I would create like lots of houses that are piles of sand and I would build the like roads between them and the make a little, um, and if it was on the, obviously you weren't allowed to do this in the in the sandpit in the park, but if you were on the beach, you'd make a river going through it and try and run actual water through your little world and the castle and the side buildings and the church and the whatever, you know. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it's always been a thing.
0: Okay. Since we've mentioned it a couple of times, yeah. maybe it's, Maybe we shouldn't be so coy about it. Rob, <laughs> we're saying that Rob wears many different hats. Yes. Do you want to tell us about some of the the yeah. pathways that you've gone down, the different stages of your career? But maybe that's not even the right question because I feel like you keep all these alive. Yeah. yeah
1: hopefully. Uh, so, I, well, I went to um, practical background that I uh, born and brought up in North London, and then I moved to Glasgow for university. When I went to university, I studied theatre simply because I was getting the best grades in drama at school and I didn't know what else to do. And then it was only there making theatre that I decided that that's what I wanted to do. But right from the start, I would direct shows and I would lead shows. I also used to act. I have definitely stopped acting.
0: <laughs> Although we're working on it. We're working on it. Watch the
1: space. I'm joking. Don't, no, don't worry thank about it. You please, no, never again. Um because I have too so much respect for the people who uh get out on a stage. That really is like a, a whole nother discipline of performance. And um whilst obviously, you know, never say never, it's definitely something that I am. Um, really enjoy working with people who know how to do that in a in a in a very refined way. Um yeah, so I used to direct, used to act, and I also right from the start at university uh just started doing sound design for friends and really enjoyed the process of uh we had a wonderful situation at Glasgow Uni, uh which was that we had a theater um the Gilmore Hill G12, which is still there, but they the university just after I finished at university wound down the company that ran it. And now it's completely internal. And, you know, it used to be that companies, professional companies and student societies and the theater department were all sharing the same theater, which had an incredible technician called Tony Sweeten, who was um, just one of the most generous and brilliant men I've met because he would, he would answer any question and he wouldn't just answer it. He would take you and show you exactly how this thing worked. And it was you know, a fully equipped, fully operational theatre that was only put there in the 90s. So we had access to an incredible resource that allowed us to experiment. And the sound design, the sound operators booth at the G12, um, it feels like talking about the Stone Age. And we're only talking about, you know, uh, sort of 2005 to 2010. But there was no, we didn't run sound on computers then. They had a bank of minidisc players and recorders mm-hmm. and students would bring in their new sources of sound which would generally be cds or towards the end of that time it was just getting to the point where you might download download songs for sounds from the internet you know mm-hmm. that was becoming a thing but the the professional system there ran on mini discs and you would prepare your sound cues by um, dubbing the sounds from whatever source you had onto a mini disc because a mini disc was like a a completely reliable way to to replay it and there was a bank of them so you could play several sounds at once over one another and you know patch things together with the whatever was happening live um so it was a lot more hands-on i think than 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 what sound design is now which is you know almost entirely done in inside q and that was the source of that curiosity and sound was the definitely the 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 idea of collage, you know, and finding, you know, I'm not just putting this song on in the show. I'm putting this song on, but I'm also going to put this other song over it. Um, I did, a, it was a production of Dr. Faustus, which was directed by Catherine Nesbitt and uh, her student production, Dr. Faustus, I did the sound for. And I, I put together, you can call this if this gets boring. <laughs> I, <laughs> I put together Zoe Keating, who's an experimental cellist, who does this quite minimal uh, sort of layers of cello with a loop pedal. And uh, are we allowed to swear? In the name yeah, of an yeah. act, okay. Fuck Buttons, who are, who are like a noise metal act who did like endlessly relentless thing because it's set in hell, right? So I was like, how do I make the sound of hell? And my sound of hell was like repeating endless noise metal with like this elegant but minimal cello over the top. So that was that definitely the start of that. And then that moved into, and then at university, uh, I then did a, I did a course, um, by a brilliant lecturer called, uh, Greg Giesekam, who's very retired now. And I, I'm not sure what he's doing. I think he retired to Australia. I hope he's got a, a brilliant life because he was, he was absolutely for me. He was one of the best lecturers I'd had at, uh, at university. He wrote a book called staging the screen and he taught a course, uh, in honors theater studies. It was all about staging the screen and where, you know, videos videos happen on stages and films happen on stages and and, and and a sort of history of companies who've used film and video and what interesting ways they used them. So that was the start and I did a um he did a course that had a practical element to it where and that was my very first video design and the uh, I and the idea of like manipulating video as a part of a live performance. Mm-hmm. Since then all three of those things, directing, sound and video have been a part of my practice in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um uh from then after i graduated uh i wouldn't be an artist i am today without the uh things i did at the arches um uh, a lot of shows at the arches um with often with uh, michael john o'neill we had a little collaboration we called ourselves enormous yes um and we uh, we made a few plays going up through the levels at the arches eventually won the platform 18 award which was you know huge for us at the time um and that show had a lot of um uh video in it although it was, it was designed by a friend of mine obviously i was directing it uh, and acting in it which as i say never again yeah. um but uh we met and then the art Arch- and then the national theater of scotland uh took me on in their emerging artists program in 2012 um and i was an assistant with them uh and as an yeah director. yes as an assistant director um that was definitely at the start, I definitely thought that's what I wanted to be you know i I enjoyed designing and i enjoyed i mean i enjoyed the community that's the thing I've always loved about theater more than anything else I think is the um you know is 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 that community of like it's inherently collaborative and it's always great to work with people and I love being a part of something and and you know doing that common exploration thing where you can try something out and you can get feedback on it immediately and you can you know it's like helping someone you know like i like helping people and i enjoy it so so i i a lot of my early sound design and video design was was because people needed someone to do sound for their show and i had that technical mind where i could take things apart and put them back together and i could you know i could you know program a computer to do what the decks did in the g12 when we weren't in the g12 and we were just doing it in the back room of a pub and you know that would you know so i liked helping people with those skills and i thought that's what the design part of it was really. I think I didn't, I think I slept on it, as the kids say. Having worked with some amazing peers who are directors, I realized that like, that's not what I want to do. (laughs) Something that I've
0: noticed when, when you're in the rehearsal room with us, for example, something that's really handy and I suspect partly comes through your directing work is that you are unafraid to just like, offer 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 and get on with it like uh-huh. um which is actually my least favorite phrase in the world just get on with it because actually sometimes it's good to stop and not get on with it but yeah um i've definitely know like like you'll you'll be tinkering with something mm-hmm. and we won't really know what you're tinkering with and then you offer it and it's this whole world which ac- which actually feels quite directorial in a really good uh-huh. way mm-hmm. yes. so it, it seems yeah, no, no, like that's you that's haven't thrown yeah. out the you know the yeah, absolutely
1: and I, like i said i don't I, I want i still want to make things mm-hmm. where i am the lead artist i have you know a whole you know like i'm sure every artist does a whole sketchbook awesome. full of ideas uh you know uh, of things that i would love to you know bring into the world and take out of my head um but i've also realized that like w- when i do that i'm going to do it in quite a specialist way and in quite a, a, a uh, focused way mm-hmm. and uh, what i think a really good director has to be is is much more general than that mm-hmm. and, and and you have to to be a leader of people in that creative way people take a lot of risks when they create so the leader has to hold a lot mm-hmm. um and i have a huge respect for people who i've worked with who who do that very well you know uh, like um uh, Colburn, Sigfrid and uh uh Debbie Hannan two directors I've worked with recently and yeah just you know a huge level of like realization that like wow that's not my job I'm glad you guys do that job that well because I see how I could
0: never do it since you mentioned the two shows, Exodus and Me and My Sister, yeah, those were the those are the. So yeah, those are two
1: to. most recent things I've worked on. Yeah, as uh, a video as designer, as a video designer,
0: yes. Okay, so well, since we've just seen Exodus, and that's the thing that's freshest on your mind, it it seemed to, it seemed to me like that really was about world building in in terms of the video itself, like because there are campaign videos in there and music videos, and like there are there are things that exist in the world.
1: Yes, and yes. I guess
0: my question is just around how you built those into a language that was specific to the show. Wow, you yeah. and Debbie and yeah, I mean, well,
1: collaboratively is the short answer, and then the long answer is you know, like um, it was a really exciting brief uh, because you know, the 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 play as written is you know in, in many ways in more ways than just in terms of the video design It's one of those great plays that's great because it's a provocation, you know, like and everything that's written on the page is almost like well, then what about this? And well, then what about that? You know, like, and it's constantly upping itself and pushing itself. Yeah, it escalates, exactly. Like, like all good farts. And, and, but then it has that dynamic that like, like I say, a lot of great, a lot of great writers have where the stage directions are almost a dare sometimes to the performance. And that's one of the great things about uh, Uma, I think the writer Um, is that she, she really dares us to, to, to go to the, the, you know, beyond our comfort zone to like, you know, some very dark places, but when we're examining very dark things, I think it's important to do that and not to do it in a way that is comfortable generally, because I think if you're comfortable when you're discussing things like this, you're probably not really cutting them open and looking at them inside, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, like the, the script, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, you know calls for a, a a baby to be thrown out of a window you know the script doesn't say what the baby is and debbie's response to that is that the baby is very much not a a human figure it's a sort of um stuffed the the sort device. of pillow shape yeah. yeah um oh i see yes. physically it's yes. not a human figure yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. you know because there's definitely a you know there's a version of this with a with a photorealistic baby doll mm-hmm. that would just be awful yeah yeah <laughs> um, and uh and and you know and other things like that and anyway and, and in the video design you know, it opens with a a dreamscape and at several times in the play, it it explicitly states that we enter a dream world and it describes very strange images that happen. And then, so Debbie's response to that as a director was that she felt a lot of that was rooted in this, the sort of visual world of artificiality that we actually all live in quite a lot these days. The sort of, the sort of shorthand we were using, although it's wider than this, is a sort of Instagram dreamscape or, uh, you know, the sort of, the hyper real artificial visual world of the internet, um, I guess was her main visual touchstone for that. Mm-hmm. So that was our um, starting point uh, for what those moments would look like theatrically. And then the other thing was that visually it would, uh, Debbie and Alicia, the Alisa uh, the uh, stage designer had decided that it would feel that it would, the set would have the feel of a photography studio or a video studio. So that there would be, very much this sense of artificiality but then also seeing the back side of the artificiality because if you, uh, for people who haven't seen it the set rotates mm-hmm. and it becomes all about what do we see behind that set and at first we're only seeing the perfect sides of it but gradually it it stops ending up in the right positions and we see more and more of the world behind it and then my response to Elisa's set design uh was that um which was really exciting was there's a train. The majority of the show is set on a train. So there was always a thought that a main part of the video would be creating some sort of fake train effect that feels fake. Um, so another thing in the initial script that we that we wanted to stage and, and didn't quite manage to uh, make happen was that there's a, a should be a rooftop chase along the top of the train. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but that uh, makes so much sense. Yeah, <laughs> it would have been joyous, but unfortunately <laughs> would have required far more resources. Yeah. Than the ones there that was a really ran.
0: brilliant rooftop yeah. moment
1: yes yes we have a rooftop moment but it, unfortunately it's not a we weren't allowed to let the actors run full-blown along the top of the set like they were uh, <laughs> uh, encouraged to in the script um but so apart from um all of that my response to elisa's design was that we should back project the train window so that's when we originally that's when originally the train window in the set was just going to be projected onto but uh i thought we would have much more fun if we we Cut the train window out so that it's a gap in the flat, and then we put a a blind behind it, which is uh, feels like one of those blinds you're always pulling up and down on trains because they're annoying. But then it also becomes the way we signify to the audience that we've sort of left the fake world of the train because it, the actors eventually open the blind to throw the baby out and then they open the blind to climb through and they open the blind to just uh and it ceases to matter you know and it becomes a tool that we use for the storytelling and then we back project the 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 train window view Mm. which has uh and then back projection has a you know a brilliant tradition in in old hollywood and like the the classic illusion before before chroma keying there was back projecting so when you know when you see actors uh, with the background cut out nowadays we we would chroma key it and have a color green or blue behind someone and, and, and cut that out uh using you know electronic i mean there was a there was an analog form of chroma keying before digital chroma keying but um before that even happened they would just you know set up a screen behind a car and and fire one film at the back of the screen behind the car so that when you film inside the car it looks like There's a city behind the car, but it's just two actors on a set. It's the classic. And so that was the kind of um, old Hollywood fakery that I enjoyed. Yeah,
0: this is so interesting because you can see how that would, I mean, absolutely contribute to the language of farce and also the language of like really scary farce that we live through in our political daily lives. Yeah. It's it's interesting to see how language around film is built into that as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, and that's what Exodus is all about. You know, that yeah. that political fast that we're all having to live through, and like, how do you yeah. cope with that? And I suppose the answer of the production is the only way to cope with that is 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 to be as ridiculous as possible. Is to push it all the way to like mm-hmm. you know, to the edge of the vision, and then yes, and then we had a lot of fun with. Um, the what appears on that back projection in the train window it's captured from a video train simulator video game okay, okay. um which was then then and it's doctored but the 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 root of it is um uh, uh because you can download train simulator video games and then you can download all sorts of routes and places for them wow. you know of course and, you can <laughs> yeah of course you can. Uh, so anyway so it was cornwall 1973 uh is what that the train backdrops mostly are because they looked like the perfect dream England of the Tories that the play is skewering. Uh, and then those are taken, and then I've like made them even more, um, uh, even more intensely bucolic and colorful and strange. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those videos um, go wrong throughout the play. They sort of glitch and get worse. And then uh, sometimes they speed up absurdly and sometimes they slow down absurdly and they just sort of become less reliable. Until the, and then at the very end of the play, the again spoiler alerts but the 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 sort of lead machiavellian spad character phoebe Bernays, played incredibly by sophie steer uh murders uh, the one journalist character and she tries to reassert after all the chaos that has happened her own will on the world and 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 she clearly brings us back to reality and so at that point she pulls the blind back down and from that point onwards it's just real trains Uh, real footage and then that footage is all from the actual journey that the train that is supposedly going on in the play which is the journey from Dover to London St Pancras Mm -hmm. so when I was in London uh, recently when we were working on the show I went on the train journey to get that footage and then ended up only using you know five minutes of it which is the final actual approach to St Pancras at the very end of the show Mm -hmm. but it was very satisfying in the way that worked out which was just you know and that was the great thing about you know working on it like I say I love going on the journey of a theatrical process and finding out the answers to these questions and trying different things out the way it worked out having that journey from that hyper real fo- fake computer version of the past into the like the the naked uh and unvarnished reality of of today um was a really nice arc i think we found in it and then after that is when the the sort of the other video you're talking about where we see her campaign videos and we see like um a, a live video of her doing a press conference and when we were working on it rishi sunak announced his candid this was the whole weird thing that's exactly it. what i was thinking yeah, of. yeah. 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 When, we, when 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 we announced uh, when we were working on exodus it was just chilling how often things that happen in the play would happen in real life while we were trying to make a play about them and it was like stop happening so we can make the play about the way things were last month do
2: you ever like change like ideas because of the real world, situation
1: no, no, there's right nothing now. in it' it's, it's as it was written by uma and and it's ironic because I think a lot of people were like, the lead character is a, a South Asian female home secretary. So I think a lot of people at first were quite uh, in a quite surface level way, like, oh, it's pretty patel. Oh, is it about pretty Patel? Yeah, yeah, and it's like, it was actually, she actually started writing it before Priti Patel was the Home Secretary. Mm-hmm. The character was invented before, you know, Priti Patel actually became Home Secretary, for one thing. And for another thing, it was, you know, it was never that direct portrayal. So when people were like, oh, Priti Patel isn't standing for the leadership. Does this ruin your play? Because the character in the play does want to be leader of the Tory party. It was like, no, I think it almost makes it a lot better. Because really, Asia Rayo, who's the character, you know, she could be any Tory. You know, she's not Pretty Patel. She's 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 a, a an archetype. She's a figure, um, and I think in a lot of ways, when you look at them, this, is getting really into the weeds, but the character on stage, as portrayed brilliantly by Ariana, um, is not at all like Pretty Patel. I think Pretty Patel, when you see her, is quite like a chilling and cold person. Assiareo is, is 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 much more <laughs> bumbling sort of classic clown sort of character, um, yes. and. I think if the play really was about a character who was like Pretty Patel, it would be over much faster.
0: There's also this thing going on where certainly this was the case with Trump and also with Johnson, where when art tried to to. Directly represent it in a sort of overblown way. Yes. It's the real person always outdid it. Yes, yeah, like you absolutely. cannot, you cannot beat yeah. the lunacy of the actual person. Whereas if you're, if what you're doing is creating something new that, yes, is clearly related to this world and yes. aware of these figures, but has a language of its own, then you, you can then you can make real farce. That's then subsist- you can yeah. make real buffonry and stuff like that. No, that's absolutely. You're also making me think like as I'm listening to you speak, I'm thinking, I'm learning about why we love working with you so much. Um, and I think part of it is that shot put, Lucy's gonna say that I sound like a broken record because I do, but like one of the things that I think we're always searching for, and um, what we should say is that Rob is also the video designer on the next shot put, <laughs> so there, that, which is one reason why he's here, um, is allowing the audience to be active in like the making of the final yeah. image. Yeah, absolutely. And with Ferguson and Burton, that is definitely like a core theme yes. of it. It's about the construction yes. of a relationship and also masculinity and femininity, but also the construction of a film, which is a Hitchcock film.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly true. Like, um, yeah, I, 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 I do love to to make something that 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 involves the audience in itself.
2: I mean, with Exodus, you came in right in the beginning. Whereas Ferguson and Martin, yeah. the show that you're a video designer for us, we had yeah. made it in 2019 and many yeah. years Some have gone by. It, yeah. There was like projection and video in it, but we yeah. didn't have a video designer at the time. So how did you find like a way in? Well, the, I, the thing about Ferguson
1: and Martin is it's I feel very privileged to work on it because, no, because I loved it. I loved the show. I, it was actually, it was the first thing I saw that you guys had made. I think I had met, Jim at that point um uh, and we we knew of each other i we think we'd gone for a coffee or something um and i was in london when it was on at the counter and also Theatre. the designer stayed with you oh, yes. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 so the so designer of I mean, ferguson yes. burton
0: lives in london came yes. to glasgow and stayed with rob
1: yes yeah so i met anna um and so you know it was one of those things where you were you know acquaintances if not yet friends and uh i, I was in london it was on at the counter camden people's theater and i thought oh, i have to go and see jim and lucy's show and i went there and i loved it i just thought it was, it was just a brilliant piece of theater and that was a part of me that you know the classic thing where whenever like one uh is a doer of something and you see a really good version of the thing that you do i was like oh, who's that video designer <laughs> you know looking it up like oh who did the video for that and i was like they don't they don't have one. Maybe I can be their video designer one day. Yeah. Um, and we should say
2: that on that version, our wonderful designer Anna Yates took yes, a, took a yes. lot of the video she design. She did do the video design. Obviously, someone yes. did
1: it because yeah. like, you know, video design is just what happens with a video on the stage. So <laughs> someone's done it, even if there isn't a named video designer. So exactly. obviously Anna to exactly. do it. But I was excited that there wasn't a, you know, a different named person. Was who name. was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I deal with that a lot. And I've been, a really helpful question for me has been to actually sit down when I feel those like those irrational feelings of jealousy rising up in me, and be and ask yourself the question, which is like, do you do you want to be doing what they mm-hmm. are doing? Mm-hmm. You know, and like I think ninety percent of the time, like the answer is like no. Like I don't. I you know, if you're really being honest with yourself as an artist, mm-hmm. I think a lot about and um, uh, like a lot of people. I think uh, I've been. I'm a, listener, a big listener of the Blind Boy podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, one of the things about mental health that he talks about a lot is about having an internal locus of evaluation, mm. uh, which just means judging your own work and your own deeds and your own life mm. by your own standards mm-hmm. and not comparing yourself to other people because if you compare yourself to other people you've just you've already lost the game in a way you know you, you're already done if you have an external locus of evaluation and you let other people's opinions of you be the decider of your own self-esteem then you're, you're not in control straight away you know yeah. uh, and i think artistically that's been really useful to me to, to focus on having an internal locus of evaluation and make work that i like that i want to see definitely
2: Yeah, so we just talked about making video for performance, yeah, but now it's just making films from a performance or something around that, and we're thinking about um, "Eat Me" that you made a feature film by Snap Elastic.
0: Snap Elastic is an amazing theatre company here in Glasgow Mm -hmm. and Edinburgh, Scotland.
1: Uh, Well, "Eat Me" was um, was a brilliant uh, project that was sadly one of the the casualties of the pandemic. They had um, uh, they've been developing it as a show for years, and then they finally got the the funding and support to do the full-scale version of the show that they wanted, and then, you know, global pandemic. No one's doing any shows. No one's allowed to do any shows. So it, it went onto the back burner for a while, and they struggled to get it out. And then in the end, they decided to uh, do a really interesting and brilliant thing, which is they made the finished version of the show, um so that it was ready for future touring and future opportunities even though audiences at that point because it was this was a we actually did this in what was it may of 2021 was when it ended up happening they made a finished version of the show in uh perth theater uh, perth uh really kindly gave over the whole auditorium for two weeks for so they could tech and finish the the show that they'd finished already in the rehearsal room uh just a few months before that but then i had the performances cancelled because of the lockdowns of christmas 2020 when everything went back in um so they decided to make that finished version of the show so it was ready and then also tape it you know and like just make a recording of it so i've done it's been a sort of side hustle of mine for a while to uh to do videography of the stage um uh partly because i realized that there's a lot of there's a lot of companies in Scotland who who need and would benefit from good videography who like uh, can't afford the higher level of production services. Um, so I sort of have positioned myself as a sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, a service in that, in that regard. Uh, but uh, what, what Snap Elastic wanted to do, which is Esther, Mashalko, uh, Claire Willoughby, my partner, and uh, Izzy Sharman, uh, what they wanted to do was was make a film that was more ambitious rather than just being a taping of the show from a few angles as it happens on stage. They wanted to explore, you know, the the extra storytelling possibilities that film can offer. So on one level we uh, shot uh, the show as if it were a film with, uh, you know, a single camera camera, uh, but like uh, with multiple takes and from multiple angles and going through the same things in different ways so that it could you know edit together as a story of the film that wouldn't be possible if you were just shooting the live show um but then also at, at another level on top of that I collaborated with Esther so we were uh, co-directors of the film Esther was the director of the show um to to add new layers of like uh filmic manipulation so there are sort of visual effects in different scenes and there are parts that like sort of drift away from the strict reality of the stage and there's scenes that play with time in a way you can't on the stage and there are scenes that like play say play with other images and overlays and things um and yeah to create a sort of um a sort of concert film, a sort of performance film, uh, a huge inspiration for for me and for all of us was uh, there's a David Byrne film called Contemporary Color, which is a concert film, and 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 that film mixes uh, recordings of a live performance that actually happened in New York with documentary footage. Um, of the companies involved in the performance, who are all various color guard companies from high schools all across America, who won a competition to be involved, David Byrne, and all of them create a color guard performance to uh, a brand new song composed by an incredible pop star who's a friend of David Byrne's, and then the final concert is the the the, the high school uh, high schoolers who've created these amazing dances performing their color guard dances with the band who wrote the song, who are uh, doing it live with them in front of an arena audience of all of their friends and family. So it's the, one of the most uplifting and lovely things that David Byrne has, he created this whole, you know, it's a performative experience, not just the final concert, but like the process all the kids went on where they got to work with incredible pop artists to, with brand new music, you know. Um, but then the film of that Takes all of those things and smashes them together in a way that a film only can. So sometimes you'll have uh, a dance solo will be as it was shot in the auditorium in the in the arena at the time, and then they'll cut cut that in with the same kid doing the dance solo in a different location in their hometown, or or they'll cut that in with the interview with the kid's mother in their house where they grew up, talking about why it means something to them, you know, like, and all of this stuff is is, you know, overlaid and collaged in a way that only film can mm. to to tell this brilliant story. So obviously Eat Me is a very, very different story. Eat Me is uh, a dark, <laughs> <laughs> <So naturally, laughs> chilling tale yeah, of cannibalism. <laughs> um but the performance is, you know, it has a a it has a voiceover narrative for a lot of it on stage, mm-hmm. and it tells a story. Whilst also the the stage picture often explores a more dreamlike version of uh, of what's happening in the story. You know, it's yes. not straightly depicting
0: it. Yes, even so, in the live performance, I feel yeah. like they're playing with that disassociation and like the difference between what you're seeing and what you're hearing. A lot. Exactly. I yeah. hadn't quite put that together until you just said that. Yeah.
1: Me. So we, so we, with the film of it, we wanted to do stuff, and I really enjoyed that. And I really, you know. Uh, uh would love to make more projects like that i mean i think um uh yeah i mean i want to be the other big hat that i don't yet have that i'm like fighting in the dirt for is the the filmmaker hat you know mm-hmm. um but like the uh, the frustrating thing to me about that is in scotland it feels like there's there's quite a quite a firm line in between the theater world and the film film world you know like and uh yeah i'm trying to push through that for a while and, yeah i think eventually i'm sure I'll, I'll, we'll get there and i yeah and I, there's lots of other things as well there's the the untitled discotheque project yes films that we made again yeah. and like i get another the of lockdown oh, yeah it was it was a, yeah.
0: a, a I'm putting air quotes, victim of the pandemic. But actually, I think (laughs) we made something
2: right, and that was different because we haven't made the performance Mm. yet. There's no there's no show to shoot. There's no show to film. So really, we made three films before we did anything else.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I mean that week was, besides being one of the maddest weeks of my life, because. Mm. Um, we, we made three films in a week, and, and really, Rob made three films wow. in a week, and then and then spent <laughs> weeks more editing them. We so the so the discotech project is a project that um, centers around teenagers and sex, and we think we think that it's going to unfold sort of at a school disco. That's the mm-hmm. setting of mm-hmm. it. Um, but then, what happens at this school disco is weird and strange, and um, flows from the characters who are on stage. So what we did with the when we when when we couldn't make the show again because of lockdown, we decided with some really great encouragement from Imaginate, um, who where where we were accelerator artists. Um, I'm probably going into too much detail. um, They encouraged us to make these films, and the films kind of became prototypes for what might be in the show, or yeah. like mood board yeah. pieces for yeah. what might be in the show. Which we've and obviously we've never worked in that way before in that yes. order yeah but it was really fun
1: yeah absolutely and yeah it's not something that normally gets done like you say to invest that much in making a a a film that's an inspiration for a performance so it was really nice to work on something weird in that sense and in a sense they're just sort of three short music videos yeah Mm -hmm. um uh which like each feature one of the dancers you're working with and um and go to sort of three different places that sort of Represent, as you say, like three of the different vibes that, that we wanted to be part of it. And it was, it was, it was, yeah, great fun to collaborate on. And yeah, but I hope one day still to make the stage version of Untitled to Disco- Project. We must. The project. Yes. We must. It's yeah. the most
0: expensive thing <laughs> known, yes, we're known are to trying shot put, so We're trying very hard. Actively. Yeah. <laughs> the, there was a moment in when we were making those films, though, that has really stuck with me. And I think I've said this to Rob, but I'm not actually even sure. Um, mm-hmm. That we were making, there's one, uh, with the dancer Tess mm. Um, and we we really went strong on the music video angle of this. So there was a yeah. there's a Dolly Parton song, and Tess is we basically made a music video. Yeah, to that, she lip syncs that song. Yeah, um, and there was a moment because there were very few people around, or comparatively few when when you're thinking about a film set. So there was a moment where Rob was holding the camera, filming Tess. And the designer, Anna Yates, was holding like a disco ball because we wanted, it's called a glitter ball. Yes. Because we wanted those glittery lights. And I was standing there holding a flashlight aimed at the glitter ball. um, And and there were a few other people like holding the sheet over Tess's head. Emma was
1: like uh, (laughs) operating the light, turning the lights on and off. Yeah. And we had like the smoke machine going. That's right. Helen was holding the smoke machine and pulling it out. It's a great, but, yeah.
0: what was brilliant is i sort of mentally zoomed out and i thought this could be the live show <laughs> yeah. like all these great layers scene. It's, a, it's a good because it's all and, like, built up them. at the
2: one yes. time and then just so, stop
1: but also it's like a nice microcosm of like the company right like when yeah. everybody is like actually physically there holding a part of the picture to make it work and put it together it's nice yeah. so
0: in in a in in a more indirect way as well, I think making those films will influence what the live performance is, not just mm-hmm. what's on film, but like mm-hmm. what went into making the films. The the last thing that and and this is a bit of like a wild card, and also will expose my own age and Luddite <laughs> uh, status. <laughs> yes. But th- there are other things that you do that, yes, right, and I'm thinking of Twitch.
1: Yeah, um, so Twitch. So, so in lockdown, I started um, uh, projects where I would um, play video games on Twitch, which is not uncommon. Twitch is a live for those who don't know what it is a live streaming platform for people playing video games. People play games, people watch other people play games, but there are lots of people who are who are opening that up in really interesting ways and going beyond just playing a game i mean there are lots of streamers who talk just talk to their audience you know uh for for protracted periods of time um with all kinds of different contexts you know sometimes that it's more like comedy a lot of comedians turn to twitch at that time in lockdown um you know uh in order to do their thing because they couldn't have a room of an audience so they would do it on twitch instead and and sometimes it's more it's less like comedy and more like therapy you know Mm -hmm. for a community or like someone who uh who holds the issues of a group of people and, 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 and speaks to stuff. And there's, a, oh, and there's a whole political side to Twitch. There are political speakers who, um, some of whom have you know, followings of millions of people who, it's a polemic, a soapbox, you know, where they talk about the news from that thing. So it's almost anything that you can imagine, but it comes from watching other people play video games. I remember the first time I heard about it and I, my flatmate, um, used to watch Twitch and watch Let's Plays as well, and I was like, why would you want to watch someone else playing a video game <laughs> when you <laughs> own your own video games? No one watching Twitch doesn't also have a games console of some kind or some kind of computer there, like play it yourself. Why are you watching someone else play it? What's the point in that? But there is a whole another level to it that comes in when you're watching someone else play it, which is incredibly performative. Which you know you 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 invest in them, you want them to succeed, or sometimes in the clown-like reverse of that you kind of a lot of twitch streamers you want to watch them fail because it's funny when they fall off for the thousandth time in a really hard video game you know so that's that whole world of like the, the performance of video games and the, the people watching them get performed and then there are people like i say on the sort of artistic edge of that blind boy who i mentioned earlier does a twitch stream where he Writes music and songs, and his stimulus is uh is he just uses Red Dead Redemption too, you know because he just wanders around in the Wild West, the fake Wild West, and you know there's so much content there, and there's such a rich experience of of wandering and walking as an inspiration source that that's how he writes his songs. But there are also there's and there's a lot of them based in Scotland as well. There's uh, James Houston, uh, ten thirty JH, who's an inspirational maker and creator of things who often. He does all kinds of different sort of tinkering projects, but he does them on stream and collaboratively. He'll talk about what he's trying to do, and he will, you know, like uh, take suggestions for how it's going to develop, and you know, he'll explain what he's doing and, uh, and just make all kinds of odd little things. Like he made a video. He's obsessed with um, wrestling, uh, professional wrestling, and he made a video that placed himself into uh, a famous moment from professional wrestling in the ninety in the early noughties using AI to replace. Sean Michael's face with his face, mm. yeah. So I loved all that content, and then so my thing in lockdown was, um, which uh, which I didn't, I didn't really pursue fully enough to get a big like following on. I enjoyed doing it, but I also found it incredibly stressful because I don't like acting, and it yeah. felt a lot like going on stage every time yeah. I turned the camera yeah. on, you know. So uh, anyway, but but well, I, I already got a lot out of it, and I do have another project that has come out of that. But what I was doing was um, playing Grand Theft Auto. So it's quite similar to um, uh, what Blind Boy does, but the the and it's exploring a digital world and using that as a stimulus for 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 creating something, but the my big sort of geek hole that I spend a lot of time in on my own is, is composite video and composite video synthesis. And, um, which is composite video is the old standard of video that before we had HD, you know, and, and I have uh, some very geeky machines that can let you generate and, and manipulate composite video signals in interesting, you know, trippy visual ways. And so what I did was I would wander around in Grand Theft Auto, but I was playing it a modded version of Grand Theft Auto on an actual, old ps2 so i had a uh, a sort of authentic composite video signal because you could emulate it and you can buy it for the iphone still you know what i mean they just did the like a version. filter but uh but,
0: yeah i mean yeah, like from, the modern from, version of it yeah, but this yeah.
1: is not the filter this is this is what it was and it was so it's kind of there's an element to the whole project that's about nostalgia and it's about sort of like walking through because grand theft auto is really interesting because it's a 2002 game by a scottish game studio that is set very much in a fictional version of california in 1992 mm. it was a big part of my you know teenage years where we was you know sitting around and playing grand theft auto right. with friends yes. so like exploring those worlds again walking those sort of uh sort of lonely digital forests of the fictional california was a really it's a really rich visual that you can then layer things on top of and sounds on top of and soundscapes and, and dreamscapes so uh, that was something and I tried a few other games as well I was like interested in what games can I find where you can play them in ways they're not intended to be played and find you know like edges and and interesting places in them that are worth you know spending some time in basically I wanted to create a sort of I always wanted it to feel quite gentle and welcoming and never like harshly strange but <laughs> the mm-hmm. difficult thing when you're improvising is it often ends up getting harshly strange and you're like no, no 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 no, i want to pull it back make it nice um anyway that was the start of the project uh and now i've been working with a composer neil simpson um uh, who was the composer on uh show drone that i made with uh harry Jose giles um just before lockdown um uh which was a fantastic thing and hopefully might come back one day uh, if we can get the support around it, but anyway, um uh, Neil was the composer on that show, which is how I met him and um, I was looking for someone he's he's got a lot of experience in that sort of uh, improvised sound world mm. um, uh, and so we've been having sort of periodic jam sessions where we do it privately and you haven't yet had the bravery to go back online with that but we're we've just put in some applications actually to try and do it live again as a live form of video art that people can participate in
0: yeah and i think i mean it's interesting we didn't mean to do this but the that full circle connection to you said nostalgia and i totally know what you mean but it's also just like I, i don't know i I've, maybe I'd feel like nostalgia sometimes has a bad mm-hmm. connotation. It's also just like reconnection and like finding those bits of you yes. and how they, mm-hmm. like, nobody's asking me, but I feel like we have a problem with like disconnecting with our past and disassociating with our past. And sometimes to be able to use that, but productively and modernly and like today, with today, feels like a really healthy thing to do.
1: We had a question because your name, your name is, is it Abiné?
0: This oh yes, your and your yeah, your Twitch. Uh, is it your was
1: like, Twitch handle? I, I, yeah, I decided to just make it my new online handle, Abonet2300.
2: And it was in your um, kind of like description about what your Twitch is. Oh yeah. You were saying that this is your happy place. Yes, yes. Yeah, and we yeah. just wanted you to tell us okay. about your happy place oh, and yeah, what that yeah, means okay, and... okay,
1: yeah sorry I should have explained this at the beginning um so uh Albany is a, a city on the moon of Ur- the anarchist moon uh of anares uh which is a location in the book um uh, by Ursula K Le Guin the dispossessed Um, I said that backwards which is a location uh, in the book The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin and uh, in The Dispossessed the two societies of this planet have, well, there was a planet and there was an anarchist revolution on the planet and there was a war between the capitalist uh, societies and the anarchists and the the resolution of that war in this society was that all the anarchists decided to leave the planet and go and live on the moon um which is not like our moon completely uninhabitable it's somewhat habitable but it's a much tougher place to live than the lush home planet that it that it's nearby um and these societies separated themselves off from one another and then the story of the dispossessed is about the first is about an anarchist scientist who has a brilliant idea and who's grown up living for generations in a completely utopian anarchist society and he has to go back to a university on the capitalist planet because they realize they have to, uh, they've been, the the scientists have been communicating in limited ways. It's obviously very much, and it's kind of an allegory for the Cold War, but it's also like, it's also more about like imagining because any real leftist, I think, has to acknowledge that like for all the good that happened in Russia in the revolution, the society that emerged out of that was hugely compromised and really not the kind of society that any like, uh, anyone <laughs> would really want in a lot of ways so it's, it's sort of us that Le Guin imagines what if there what if there was a sort of perfect society from a you know explicitly leftist anarchist perspective what if we really implemented these political ideals in a real place what would that place be like and what would it be like if someone born and brought up there then went back to a world that looks very much like our own um and so that it's a great story you know um that 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 uses those explores all those political ideals but also has a brilliant you know human thread through it and um, uh, lovely great science fiction absolutely as the Ursula le Guin is you know uh, she's the queen for me she's the god she's the mm. the greatest writer i think um in my opinion uh but anyway and so Abernay is the capital city of the anarchist moon. But I made it Abernay 2300 because the book is set in the year 2300, even though it's not, it's set, on a, it's set in a group of people who have never heard of Earth or on the other side of the galaxy. But it's part of like a wider series of books that eventually um, interact with our world. It's happening in the year 2300. So Abernay in the year 2300 is my happy place. A fictional anarchist moon. Marian. Well, it sounds
0: like uh,
1: we should all go there.
0: Well, thanks so much, Rob, for yeah, talking to us. has been great. That was Rob Willoughby. Uh, and since you've listened right to the end of this podcast, I trust that you have fallen for Rob as much as we have at Shotput. Um, what a guy. I should say that maybe some of you, especially if you're real Scottish theatre aficionados, some of you, you might be thinking... Um, For someone that has such uh, extensive experience, why have I not heard of this Mr. Willoughby? And that might be because, until quite recently, Rob Willoughby was Rob Jones. Rob took his wife's surname. They were married this summer at a beautiful ceremony that was... uh, Appropriately theatrical and completely joyous. So, congratulations to the Willoughbys, Rob and Claire. You can find some links in the description of this podcast, including Rob's own website, as well as his Twitch and uh, his Twitch and Twitter feeds, which, as we discussed in the podcast, are to be found at Abney twenty three hundred. That's A B B E N A Y two three zero zero. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, the very first of uh, the inaugural mini-series of the Shotput podcast, and we hope uh, we hope it'll have a very long life. We shall see. This podcast was made with the generous support of Creative Scotland. It was hosted by myself, Jim Manganello, and Lucy Ireland, Shotput's other artistic director, edited by Sonia Kilman. Sonia also composed the podcast Music. If you would like to engage with Shotput further, we would love to catch you on tour, on the tour of our show, Ferguson and Barton. You can find all of our tour dates on our website, which is www.shotput.org. We are touring from the 17th of September to the 15th of October in this year, 2022. And some theaters where we are performing will also be screening Hitchcock's movie, Vertigo, uh, either before or after, like a day before or a day after the show. You can find more details about that um, on our website as well. So if you can't get enough of us, uh, if you're all in, you can listen to the podcast, watch the film, see the live show, and and also catch us after the show. Uh, we'd love to talk to you In the bar. Um, Till then, take care. Goodbye.